listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. We are uh, kind of in the middle of a series that we've been, uh, been part of entitled Dark Sides. And we're examining in this series life lessons that we can learn from some fascinating characters in the Bible, and yet we're looking at uh, some of the challenges that they faced in life. Two weeks ago, we looked at King David and how he had a lot of loss in his life and how because of that, he had to wrestle a lot with grief. And so we looked at that. Uh, Last week, we looked at his son, King Solomon, who wrestled with addictions. Today, we're going to travel back in time to the original foundation of the nation of Israel when it actually was still a small family. And let's see if we can learn some lessons from this family for our lives and for our individual families. Let's pick up the Bible reading. If you have your Bible, you can turn to uh, Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 25. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can uh, follow along with the message insert inside the bulletin. But in Genesis 25, we're introduced to this family. In verse 19, this is the account of the family of Isaac the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah. Now, as we keep reading in this text, we'll learn that Isaac and Rebekah face difficulty in having children, and eventually, yet, uh, the Lord answers their prayer, and Rebekah becomes pregnant. And in the midst of the excitement, the Lord reveals to them that they are expecting not one baby, but twins. And let's read about that in verse 24. And when the time came to give birth, Rebekah discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. So they named him Esau. When the other twin was born, with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. Now, just a few quick thoughts. First, can you imagine living in a time, uh, especially those of you who are ladies and, and maybe have had children or are hoping to have children in the future, can you, can you imagine a time, which really wasn't that long ago, but definitely in this time, where if you were expecting twins, you wouldn't find out about it often till the birth. Well, they're given a... Uh, Isaac and Rebecca are given a bit of a tip before the babies are born. But it, this reminded me of my own grandmother, who uh, after my mom and her uh, sister and brother born next to her uh, were in their teens, uh, my grandmother and grandfather had another pregnancy. And, and that one, they had twins, my twin uncles. Uh, but back then, that was before ultrasound. 
and before any of the modern diagnostic tools. And so I, uh, my mom tells this story. I don't remember because this was before I was born, but my mom tells the story of how that her last checkup at the doctor before the babies were born, uh, the doctor who had a great bedside manner said, boy, you're getting really big. Just what an expectant mother wants to hear, right? And she, he says, you're getting so big, you might be having twins. Well, my dad, my grandfather joked about it and said, let's name them Pete and repeat. Well, um, I guess the cheesy humor is inherited as well. But anyways, uh, uh, but anyways th- they did have twins. They named them Sammy and Danny, but those are my Uncle Sam and Uncle Dan. See, I have an Uncle Sam. Everybody does, but I literally have an Uncle Sam. But uh, think about that. Just just had an inkling that they were going to have twins. Well, they're told here that they're going to have twins. Second, there's a, this is a fascinating example, the birth of these twins, of how certain tendencies and traits can be seen really early on in a child's development, reminding us that some qualities seem to be imprinted upon us genetically and are God-given. Here we see Esau who was later given the name Edom, which means red. And uh, so he became the ancestor of the people you read about in the Bible called the Edomites, okay? Esau was red, but also he was very hairy. So he had like a fur. Well, he grows up to be a very hairy man, and we'll read about that in just a minute. Jacob, which is still very popular today, literally means a supplanter or deceiver or even more literally, one who grasps the heel. Well, Jacob, when he is born, he is literally grasping the heel of his older brother Esau. Now, I'm not quite sure how the Hebrew idiom, idioms, you know, translate. And, and um, you know, we have an English idiom that though it makes me think that it's kind of like this. You know, we use the phrase, don't pull my leg. What does that mean? Don't trick me. Don't deceive me, right? And I'm not sure if that's what it meant in Hebrew, but I think it's interesting that Jacob and Esau, when they are born, Jacob literally is pulling his brother's leg, if you will, which was really a foretelling of his personality, of that of being deceptive. One more thought before we move on uh, to Jacob's unfolding story is that Often I thought, you know, Jane and I, we became parents when we were in our 20s, and, and I've often thought, you know, as I look back now that my kids are raised and now they're married and uh, living out on their own, I think, man, I, I think I'd do a better job being a dad, you know, if I had a chance to do it over again, maybe if I wasn't quite so young. And, and yet, we find that Isaac was 60 years old when these twins were born, and yet we're going to see he still struggled. And so maybe it's not just age, maybe it's that you've never had an experience before of being a parent. But we're going to see that some of the mistakes that Isaac and Rebekah make, they pass on to Jacob and Esau, a dysfunctional family. And let's read about that in verse 27. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. 
Here we see a classic mistake in parenting. As Isaac and Rebecca have favorites, and it's obvious as the story unfolds that the, the boys are even aware that their parents have favorites and that they play into that and even seek to manipulate the other through the favoritism of the one parent. And so, in many ways, there's a dysfunction occurring in this family. This family doesn't function in the way that a healthy family would function. And that's where the term dysfunctional comes from. Now, maybe some of you have experienced in your own life a dysfunctional family growing up. Maybe some of you, when you type in a Google search, dysfunctional family, you have a little bit of fear in your heart that a a portrait or picture of your family is going to pop up on the screen after you finish the search. And so maybe you know painfully what it means to grow up in a dysfunctional family where there's all kinds of unhealthy practices. Well, there's a couple things that I'd like for you to take to heart this weekend as we look at this family is that the Lord blessed and worked through this family for generations. And in fact, in many ways, God is still working through this family to bless each and every one of us. And so that tells me God takes that which is imperfect and that which is dysfunctional, and He works through it in an amazing way. So I hope that that encourages each and every one of us that there's hope for all of us, regardless of our background or regardless of some of the dysfunction that we grow up with. And yet I hope that we also learn this weekend that the root of many of these weird family dynamics and relationships problems that we'll even observe in Jacob's family have to do with an issue of control. As we'll see that Jacob is truly a control freak, literally from the womb trying to grab his older brother and, uh, and pull him back in, if you will, so he could be the oldest and be in control. And if you go back and read this amazing story about Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25 through 27, you'll find that these, these twins come to learn some very unhealthy relationship practices, interactions, as they observe their parents interact with each other, and with others. They observe Isaac deceive others, and they see their parents try to manipulate each other, and even at times draw their children into the deception. No wonder Jacob would later take advantage of his brother's weakness to get his birthright. And maybe some of you have read this before, and you're trying to make sense of what's birthright and what's blessing. Well, a birthright for the Jewish people meant that they got a double portion of the family inheritance. And then if you keep reading in Genesis 27, you see that there's this, there's this elaborate scheme that Jacob is a part of, along with his mother, Rebecca, where they uh, scheme uh, to manipulate and deceive Isaac so that Isaac will give the blessing to Jacob. This the scheme involves uh, Isaac, uh, excuse me, Jacob actually dressing in Esau's clothes so that he will smell like his brother Esau. He even, the mother even helps put goat skin on his arms and on his neck so that when Isaac, whose sight is failing, will reach out and touch him, he'll feel a hairy man like Esau so that Isaac will bless Esau and give him the family blessing. 
Now, Jacob carries out all these deceptive interactions so that he receives the blessing. And let's pick it up, the story in Genesis 27 and verse 35. But Isaac said, your brother was here. This is when Esau shows up to receive the blessing. And he tricked me. He has taken away your blessing. Esau exclaimed, no wonder his name is Jacob, for now he has cheated me twice. First he took my rights as the firstborn, and now he has stolen my blessing. When you really think about it, so many problems that we have in relationships, in marriages, in families, and even in our church lives result from people not being honest with each other. Here we find this major deceit and dishonesty that Jacob is a part of. In my research for this message, I came across a fascinating study written describing uh, an intensive study, extensive study, excuse me, done by the University of Massachusetts in 2002. Through this study on the subject of dishonesty, they discovered that 60% of adults can't have a 10-minute conversation without lying at least once. Now, some of you might think, oh, no way. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm an honest person. I'm a part of the 40% that always tells the truth. Well, if you would say that, you probably just lied, okay? But, but the truth of it is, the people in this study, when they told them what they were testing them for, they said, oh, I'm gonna be a part of the 40%. I, I tell the truth. But what they did was they interviewed these people then they showed them the videotape later and had them help count the fibs or lies they told in the interview. And they found that it was not just once every 10 minutes that people were dishonest. They actually found the average was that the average person was dishonest three times in a 10-minute interview. Now, because of this awareness, I'm going to cut my message 10 minutes shorter just to, to reduce the chance. No, that was my first lie. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm not going to do that. But I, I, I intend to be honest from this point forward. Okay. But the, the troubling thing of this study is that the research found that lying is learned at a very young age. They found that by the age of four years old, think about that, four years old, 90% of children have mastered the art of deception or lying. Now, I know that all the students that are in the crowd today, they don't do that. But that's what they found in the study. Now, to help drive this point home, I found this video that I thought maybe you would enjoy. And I need to set this up. I didn't set this video very well because if I don't tell you what's going on here, you won't catch it. This, this video was actually filmed. It's a very short, so you gotta listen closely. Uh, this video was shot by a mother in Scotland, okay? She caught her little boy, and I don't know how old he is. He's probably a little younger than four. I'm not a good gauge of that. But he, she caught him literally red-handed. He had got into her lipstick, and he, she had, he had a tube of her lipstick, and he was holding it, okay? And he's standing in front of a mirror, and he's marked the mirror all up with red lipstick, and she catches him, and she has the wherewithal to film this. Uh, 
him being caught in the act. Okay, let's watch it. Let's see how he handles it. No, who on Mommy's mirror? I don't know. Was it you? No. Okay, did you catch that? I, I'm sorry that my, I stood in front of the speaker or something. It went off. But so he's, he's standing there and he's caught right hand and she says, did you do this? No, I didn't do it. Who did it? It was in a Scottish accent. You might not have caught He said, Batman did it. <laughs> Batman swooped in, marked up your mirror with red lipstick. Batman did it. And she asked him again. Yes, Batman did it. He would not come true. I'm honest. Well, according to the research cited in the article I referred to earlier, which was found on mentalfloss.com. Now, we know the internet never lies, but, but uh, the truth of it is I found this, this story actually in this article on multiple sources, so I have confidence in it. But uh, according to the research uh, our, our parents get the worst end of this. And I thought this was maybe, again, appropriate with students in here. They found that through research from the book, The Day America Told the Truth, that 86% of us have been dishonest with our parents, followed by 75% with friends, 73% with siblings, and 69% with spouses. But in general, what the research found is that we lie about things that aren't that important, little things that, that will make us look better or more likable. Why? Because we want to control our image. We want to control what other people think about us. In so many ways, this issue of dishonesty roots back to us trying to control the article goes on to say that far too often we also end up lying about things that do matter. For example, the article says that according uh, to one estimate, 40% of people lie on their resumes. Now, at first glance, I thought, that's awful high. But then just this weekend in the news, somebody got caught in the public arena lying about their resume. So it happens. According to a study by the Scientific American, a whopping 90% of people looking for a date online lie about their online profile, so be aware. Now, my point in sharing this data is not to excuse lying, because as we can see from Jacob's life, dishonesty created all kinds of problems. It created all kinds of tension in his relationships in, in his, his marriages later, later, okay, and yes, multiple marriages, but we won't get into all that today. Again, as I shared uh, last week, the Bible reports that which happens, not necessarily what, even if it was right, okay? And so we read about that. But also the, the problems that existed in his families for years. Now, a few weeks ago, I shared during the message about grief, and I shared personally about grief that I experienced when my dad passed away. I had someone approach me after that message and they said, you know, as you talked about the relationship you had with your dad, it, it seemed like you were really, really close. And I said, we were. And I, he said, what do you think was the secret of that closeness? And I've thought a lot about that because I wanna have a close, close relationship with my children. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, 
My dad had many endearing qualities, but the one thing that my dad was known for was he was a man of integrity. He told us kids what was right and true even when we didn't want to hear it. He was honest. In fact, at his funeral, it was shared that when, he, when people thought of my dad, they thought of one word, and that was the word integrity. I'm grateful that I grew up with a dad like that. And I want that to be said about me. How about you? Wouldn't it be great that when people think of you, they think of the word integrity? The word integrity literally means one being one person, that you're the one person all the time. You're consistent, you're honest, and you're straightforward. Can that be said about you? Can that be said about me? And yet, so often, we can excuse our lack of integrity, and yet we are painfully aware when someone has not been honest with us. Have you ever noticed that? That sometimes we forget or we give ourselves a little bit of slack when we're not totally honest, but when we catch someone not being honest with us and we end up being disappointed or hurt or disillusioned, we never forget that. Well, maybe it's because of that dynamic that the Lord allowed Jacob to meet his match. Jacob had this problem of being dishonest, and he meets a formidable match in his uncle Laban. Now, after Jacob had tricked Esau, Esau is hot. He is angry. He wants to kill Jacob, his brother. And so Rebekah, again, is manipulative, and she talks Isaac into sending Jacob away to find a wife in another location and with her, her brother's family. And so let's read about that in Genesis 28, verse 5. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to stay with his uncle Laban, his mother's brother, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean. Now, while living with his Aramean uncle, Jacob learns painfully what it feels like to be lied to and deceived. I think, again, the Lord's allowing him to see this, this flaw in his, his character that needed to be addressed. In fact, 20 years later, this is how Jacob describes his time with his uncle Laban. In Genesis 31, verse 40, he says, I worked for you. He's talking to his uncle here. I worked for you through the scorching heat of the day and through cold and sleepless nights. Yes, for 20 years, I slaved in your house. I worked for 14 years, earning your two daughters, and then six more years for your flock. And you changed my wages 10 times. So we see that Jacob has met his match, and Laban was dishonest and deceptive with him. And yet, most importantly, from the lessons of Jacob's life, we see how that Jacob's deceptive, manipulative, dishonesty, and dysfunctional relationships also affected his spiritual life. Or maybe it was the other way around. His spiritual life affected his relationships with others. We're going to go back now and look at some of the prayers that Jacob prayed during this course of his life that I just tried to walk us through fairly quickly. And we're going to look at his relationship with God and how it evolves. And I would like for each of us to take a look at our own relationship with the Lord and see if we can make any application to our lives. If we go back to chapter 28, when, when 
Jacob is fleeing from his brother Esau. This is before he goes to his uncle Laban's house and before he gets married and has kids. But on his way, fleeing from that bad situation, he's actually met and, and, and the Lord reveals himself to Jacob and gives him a vision. Maybe you've heard about it before, Jacob's ladder. He has this vision of a ladder or some translations even read stairway to heaven. And it was, this, was, this was the original stairway to heaven. Okay. But anyways, so, so Jacob uh, has this vision and the Lord reveals to Jacob that he is going to unconditionally his presence will be with Jacob, his provision, his protection will be with Jacob. And I want you to listen, after this unconditional promise from the Lord to Jacob, how Jacob responds to the Lord with a vow. In Genesis 28, verse 20, then Jacob made this vow, if God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshiping God. And I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. Do you notice what Jacob does here? He gives a very conditional vow. In fact, I counted four if statements. Jacob says, Jacob says, if God will indeed be with me, if he will protect me on his journey, on this journey, if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's house, he says, in other words, if God does all this for me, then I will let him be my God. Okay, that's big of you, Jacob. That's his vow here. It's very conditional. And he says, and if God allows me to come all the way back here someday safely, then I will give a tithe, 10% back to God. Do you see how Jacob's trying to make a deal with God? He's trying to bargain with God here. He's saying, God, if you will do all these things, then I will serve you. One commentator wrote, Jacob, whether he realizes it or not, is in no position to bargain with God. God, unlike Isaac and Esau, cannot be swindled or manipulated. It does not seem as though Jacob understands this very clearly at this point in his life. Now, I know that none of us would ever try to make a deal with God, right? Have any of you ever prayed, God, if you get me through this, I'll go to church every weekend. God, if you get me through this, I'll read my Bible every day. God, if you'll provide for me in this new job, then I'll start giving regularly to the church. You see, we can fall into this same track of, of trying to bargain with God, trying to give out these conditional promises. Why? Because like Jacob, we want to continue to be in charge. We want to continue to be in control. And in that struggle with control, it prevents us from totally surrendering ourselves to God's lead and to God's care and to God's will for our lives. And often then these control issues emerge in our relationships with others. And that those relationship problems are simply a symptom of a deeper problem with, of us not being willing to relinquish our control 
of our life to God. Well, this comes to a head in Jacob's life after he spends 20 years with his uncle. And in the midst of all that deception, God continues to bless him. He has now accumulated an extremely large family, lots of possessions and wealth. And yet as he plans to return home, he recognizes that now he has to face the music of his angry brother and and try to resolve this broken relationship. And by the way, isn't that the result of being a control freak? When we're a person that's always trying to control things and trying to control relationships, we often leave a trail of broken relationships with unresolved issues. And yet Jacob realizes as he's going to return home that he has to face his brother. Now think about that for our own lives. Do you have any broken relationships in your life? Do you have any unresolved issues with a family member, a person at work, a person in the church, or an old friend? You know, we can be quick to point out what they've done wrong in the relationship, but are we quick to examine our own honesty and truthfulness, our own character, our own interactions, and maybe anything that we've done that's played a part in contributing to this broken relationship? And are we willing to say, say no to our pride and even our desire to control things and humble ourselves and maybe seek forgiveness so there can be true reconciliation? Some of us still want to stay in control and say, well, I I would ask for forgiveness if they'll ask for forgiveness. You know, we're still trying to control it, right? You see, sometimes we have to take that first step. Well, Jacob takes that first step and he begins his journey back home with his large family. And on the way, he has another personal encounter with God as he plans to meet his brother Esau, excuse me, Esau, who earlier had wanted to kill him. And after all these years, he's, he's now wanting to seek reconciliation. But honestly, as we read this prayer, I don't think he's quite there yet. In Genesis 32, verse 9, it says, Then Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you told me, return to your own land and to your relatives. And you promised me I will treat you kindly. I'm not, I'm not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you've shown me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I owned nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. Now, do you notice some nuances about this prayer? Do you notice that Jacob is still on borrowed faith? He says, oh God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, he still doesn't say, you're my God. You see, he's still just living off the faith of his dad and his grandfather. He's not yet totally surrendered to the Lord's leadership in his life. Yet he's beginning to recognize that God is blessing his life. In contrast, he recognizes that he's not worthy of that unfailing love that the Lord has shown him. Now, after this, what I think is an honest prayer where he still reveals where he's at, he he still hatches this manipulative scheme. 
And if you go back and read it, it's really quite cowardly, I think, because he sends a bribe ahead of himself to try to pacify his brother Esau. Then he divides his large family up into groups, sending women and children ahead of him. You know, I think about that. Okay, you're going to let the women and children face your angry brother first. And that's what he does. And he stays behind the river and behind the river. And there, once again, he has an encounter with God. And, and he wrestles with who he thinks is a human. But if you go back and read this text, this, this human that Jacob is wrestling with is actually God. But he doesn't realize it. He wrestles all night, and finally the Lord reaches and touches Jacob's hip, and because of that, he walks with a limp the rest of his life. And we read about that in Genesis 32, verse 25. It says, the Lord touched, in the form of a man, touched Jacob's hip and reached it out of its socket. Now, at the end of this wrestling match, the Lord truly breaks Jacob. And he speaks to Jacob saying, then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Finally, the Lord has Jacob's attention. He's now a broken man, finally ready to surrender to the Lord's leadership. After this wrestling match in verse 20, It says, there he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. God has finally become Jacob's leader. Jacob has finally surrendered to the Lord's lead in his life. And as a result of that, he has a new character, a new name, Israel, and he has a new limp. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Church Movement, referred to this passage when he said, don't trust a leader who doesn't walk with a limp. And see, see, until we have had our lives humbled and changed by God, then we really aren't ready to be the leader in our marriage, in our families, in our worship places, in our small groups, or in our ministry the leader that God has called us to be. We have to be willing to enter into the arena, wrestle with God, and allow God to change us, surrendering ourselves to his lead, not trying to keep control, but truly relinquishing control to his leadership for our lives. Well, how does this story speak to you? I've wrestled with this story this past week. And as I read at the end of Jacob's life there in Genesis 35, where God said to him, your name is Jacob. You should no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from you. In wrestling with God this week preparing for this message, I realized in my life there's still too much of me. There's still too much of me trying to control things in my life and in my relationships. 
And I recognize that I need to truly wrestle with God and learn to let go and let God lead every area of my life, my family, and this church so that he can do what he wants to do in my life and so that he can do what he wants to do in the life of this church. I'm grateful for how God keeps adding to this church, but you know, I long for God to multiply this church and for us to break through to new arenas of service and ministry in this community. And I know the only way that's gonna happen is for me and for other leaders of this church and for every person that's a member here to truly surrender to God's lead in our lives so that he can work through us as he wants to work through us. As we conclude our time together, I want you to examine your heart. Have you been willing to enter the arena and wrestle with God and truly surrender your life and your will and your relationships over to him? Or are you like Jacob still trying to take control? As we enter into our time of communion, as we close out our time together, it's a time for us to recognize that we trust as individual followers of Jesus, not our strength or our self-sufficiency, but in Jesus Christ, we learn to rely upon him as our savior. And to prepare your hearts and my heart for a time of communion, I wanted to read to you what one writer, Frederick Beekner, wrote about this story, this wrestling match between Jacob and the Lord. And this is what he had to say, and I hope it will serve to prepare you and me for a meaningful time of communion with the Lord. He says, Beekner says, the darkness had faded just enough. This is at twilight after he's wrestled all night with God. So that for the first time, he can dimly see his opponent's face. And what he sees is something more terrible than the face of death. It's the face of love. At last, Jacob cries out, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Not a blessing that he can have now by the strength of his cunning or the force of his will, but a blessing that he can have only as a gift. Power, success, happiness as the world knows them are for those who will fight for them hard enough. But peace, love, joy are only from God. And God is the enemy whom Jacob fought there by the river, of course, and whom in one way or another we all fight. God, the beloved enemy. Our enemy because before giving us everything, he demands of us everything. Before giving us life, he demands our lives, ourselves, our wills, and our treasures. During this time of communion, let's all ask ourselves, have we truly surrendered to the Lord's lead in our life? And if not, are we willing to use this time to truly surrender our hearts to, as Beekner said, our beloved enemy who longs to multiply us if we'll just surrender? Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for this rich story in scripture of how Jacob wrestled with you 
learning to let go of control and let you lead. Help each of us in our lives learn to let go and let you. And during this time of communion, Lord, help us let go of guilt or shame or control or pride and help us receive these these emblems that remind us of one who was willing to surrender it all for us so that we could have a relationship with you. Help us follow his lead and surrender all to you at this time. It's in Jesus we pray.